This is Undark. We're a magazine devoted to exploring the intersection of science and society, and we're this podcast. Hello again. Welcome to episode 20. I'm David Corcoran. Polio. It's a word that used to strike fear into families everywhere, the name of a cruel virus that caught up with children on the playground or in school or summer camp and sentenced them to a lifetime of paralysis. In the United States and other parts of the developed world, we have the luxury of speaking about polio in the past tense, but the disease is still very much alive in a few corners of the world. Reporter Joe Chandler recently spent time in one of those corners to write a cover story for Undark about the effort to wipe it out for good. She joins us now. Joe Chandler, welcome. Thank you, David. Let's uh, talk about the persistence of polio. Given the almost complete success of the polio vaccine here, how does the virus manage to hang on and, and where? Okay, it's been an extraordinary story. I mean, it was back in 1988 that this sort of global effort was hauled together to try and, you know, do what's never been done before, um, except for the smallpox, except for smallpox, where the ambition was to, you know, rid the planet of this disease. And so since 1988, when there were about 350,000 cases of polio globally, we've spent something like $15 billion. And by last year, we had whittled that number down to just 37 cases, um, which is an extraordinary effort. Astonishingly, so far this year, we're down to 12, uh, a mere 12. And that's sort of well under the, the, the figure that we had for the, for the same time last year. So it's really getting quite tantalisingly close, the prospect that we might actually win this war against polio. But the last sort of ditch efforts where it's really dug in and it's proving really, really difficult to to eradicate are really in, in these sort of incendiary, really uh, dangerous corners of the world where you get um, extremists uh, like the Taliban and in northern Nigeria, Boko Haram, you know, basically mad, bad men with guns who will not let vaccine teams into these regions, who uh, sort of stir up local concerns uh, sometimes about, you know, that the, the vaccine program is some sort of a, a Western plot or who have just really an agenda that is anti-West on everything, including including medicine. That said, there are some some Taliban who are, you know, and, and, and many Muslim communities that are, you know, highly supportive and, and want this vaccine for their kids. But there are just these pockets where it's become really, you know, too dangerous for vaccinators to get in there. And so you've got these sort of last festering crucibles of disease and this, you know, enduring prospect that it's just so easy for it to sort of escape the containment lines and get back into the world. Yeah, let's talk about that a little. Uh, you say there have been only a dozen cases this year, which suggests that polio is really almost completely wiped out. Why are the authorities so keen to eradicate it completely? Well, the great fear is that after these almost 30 years of effort and all those billions of dollars, that it could just all be undone. As I said, if the, if the virus breaks out of the containment lines and, and sort of manages to 
sort of sneak inside, you know, it, it, it's carried inside the human gut. Um, it can, you know, thrive and multiply there. So, it, you know, it can walk out of these communities really quite easily. And and we've seen this happen before. And the great concern is that, that if we don't manage to actually quash this disease completely, even in these really remote strongholds, Within a year or, you know, sorry, within a decade, um, that could cascade into as many as 200,000 children being paralysed globally every year. So there's an enormous amount at stake here if this virus manages to find its way back out into the world and to fall upon communities that don't have adequate vaccination and sort of fire itself up again. And we've seen the sense of the sort of wildfire potential of that outbreak. Um, if we just look back in Nigeria to 2003, um, in 2002, the number of polio cases across the whole of Nigeria was down to just over 200, 202. And then in 2003, the vaccine programs in, in five states across the Muslim north were all sort of shut down just for a couple of months in most instances and a year in one state in Kano. But the effect of that was absolutely catastrophic. By 2006, it had spiked right back up again to over 1,100 cases in Nigeria. And then it escaped and genetic analysis later showed that the virus, the particular strains that had come out of Nigeria through this period of, of bans on vaccine in one part of the country, had gone to 20 countries right across Africa, the Middle East, into Southeast Asia and caused 80% of the world's cases of polio paralysis at that time. And the cost to regain control was about half a billion dollars. So, you know, it doesn't take much. One bit of kind of interference in, in, in the sort of vaccination regimes and that really quickly sort of, you know, it, it can race out of control like a wildfire. Your story opens up in that uh, state of Kano and I guess the capital city also called Kano. Why did you go there particularly and, and what did you see? Well, Kano, as I mentioned before, it was really a hot spot for um, sort of the rejuvenation of polio across Africa and, and more broadly just those few years ago. And that was because there had been this real sort of festering of a couple of things that had occurred. Um, th these are This is a hardline Muslim state. It's ruled by Sharia law. And there had been really some a good deal of suspicion around the vaccine. There were some mullahs, some religious leaders, some traditional leaders who were concerned whether there was um, some sort of plot, whether the, this vaccine was safe for their children. And then this was all inflamed when a very respected local doctor broadcast his belief that he had some evidence that there were some sort of contaminants in the vaccine that had been planted there to reduce the fertility of the Muslim population. So you can imagine the effect of this in this community. And that, that was when the boycotts were put in place on the vaccines. And so... In order to really, you know, to, to counter this and to get the vaccine program working again through this area, there's been this really intense effort by health specialists, by cultural specialists. You know, you're bringing in all sorts of social scientists as well as medical experts to try and rehabilitate and re-establish faith in the vaccine. 
So as I said, Kano was kind of, you know, the epicentre of resistance and concern about polio vaccine. And and so when we were in that square in Kano, what we were really seeing was this incredible pageant, this mixture of a health messaging, but also cultural and religious messaging. And it was all about broadcasting to this assembled gathering that their religious leaders were on board with this, that it was okay to be taking this vaccine, that their traditional leaders who have immense power in this part of the country were supportive and wanting to see them use this vaccine, that they had faith in this vaccine. And then you've got the bureaucracy of the actual health systems. So we were sort of sitting in this public square watching this incredible sort of um, extravaganza of an event that's really a public relations exercise in trying to build faith in, in the vaccine program. And as a journalist, I'm sitting there in the middle of this and in some ways it's an incredibly frustrating moment because I just want to get out of the, the heat and I want to get away from the officials and we've been sitting there for several hours and what I really wanted to do was to be in the villages with the vaccine teams while they go door to door finding babies and giving them vaccine and talking to these teams of mostly young women and to mothers and to families about what this means to them and their attitudes around the vaccine. But we're sort of held hostage for several hours in this incredibly hot public square while we watch all this process go on. And and it's sort of a... You have moments in your career when there's sort of this aha moment and, and you feel this kind of layering of experience build up. And, and this is one of those, whereas as a reporter, I've reported on health and development issues, diseases like TB, HIV, malaria for a good 15 years now. And in countries like Papua New Guinea and the Democratic Republic of Congo and Mozambique and Afghanistan. And what you see is that none of these programs work unless you do your homework with those communities. You can't come in arrogantly and impose. You must consult the local people. You must ask permission. And similarly, as journalists, when we're in these places, you know, we have to, we can't just bowl into a village and stick a microphone in some front of somebody. We have to be humble enough to ask permission to get entree to a community. Or the risk is that if we kind of just go in there with heavy boots, we might undo all the work that's been done trying to build faith and, and local networks and relationships in order to deliver vaccine to these communities. So sort of sitting there with sweat dropping off me, watching this whole thing unfold, I guess that that was the moment for me to realise I thought that I was coming to watch the vaccine taken door to door. But in fact, the key to this whole campaign is this moment, this bit of official sort of public relations. But then you did go with a team of vaccinators uh, on an excursion to vaccinate young children. Can you describe one of those visits? What were the people like that you went with and the people whom you met with in those homes there? We went out to several villages and one remote village well on the outskirts of Kano and then we went to another sort of urban uh, centre within further up in the country right under the border with Niger and that was in the city of Katsina and in these instances what we're doing is trailing behind the vaccine teams so these are groups of um, as I said mostly young women they're kind of always from these communities they're, they're, they're 
organized like troops you know from the foot soldiers at the very bottom up through different layers of of um, sort of authority until you get sort of to the to the generals of this operation but the foot soldiers are regular women who know these communities inside out and they have been quietly watching they know which households have new babies which households were missed last time in the vaccine push and three or four times a year they go out to do these sort of supplementary immunization sort of massive campaigns and what would occur is you walk, you come to the village and there are drums and there's sort of um, clowns dancing in the street. There's this character called Papa Lulu with this an enormous sort of um, bottom and, and a tail like a horse and his face is painted purple and he's throwing candy and little sachets of, of dried milk to try and attract, to lure the children really. He's the Pied Piper trying to bring these kids out of the houses. And so it's really a joyous occasion. It's loud and crazy and musical and there's people dancing and they're sort of distracted by and and excited by this campaign. And, of course, in the villages we went to, it's made a bit more interesting by by us. You know, there's this sort of, you know, little entourage of journalists with um, our police guards rolling along with this as well. But we would trail along with these um, vaccinators and literally go from sort of door to door of these little, you know, huts and communities, mostly sort of earthen houses, and you sort of weave your way inside having asked permission from whatever woman we would find at the door. And then all the vaccinators, they ask this routine sort of set list of questions about how many children under five are in the house, whether there are any visitors who have slept over, are there new babies, have the children been vaccinated, can they vaccinate them? And then they pull out from their icebox these little, you know, the pink drops, the little pink drops, which certainly someone of my vintage, I remember having those as a kid um, before, you know, we moved to a different sort of vaccination injected regime in, in, the, in the developed world. But so it's really quite an extravaganza and, and also mixed in with this crowd as you move from door to door are survivors of polio. So there are people propelling you know who basically have no legs withered legs and they're propelling themselves across the ground with their hands maybe with a pair of flip-flops threaded onto their hands to protect them from the earth and or they might sometimes be on these sort of low cycle chairs that they make for polio um, survivors and if the vaccine teams hit a household where the father, and it'll be the father that imposes this, is objecting, as the household head says, that he doesn't want the children to have vaccine and the women fall into line behind that, then it becomes this negotiation between the men, the survivors of polio, the local mullahs, other traditional leaders will sort of run an intervention with this man and try to persuade him that he's wrong and that he should allow the vaccine to be given to his children. So it's this sort of SWAT team come in behind the vaccinators to try to support them to make sure that the vaccines are, are given. And of course, um, the the uh, vaccine has to be administered more than once, right? That's right. Four times, really, for it to be considered effective. And so that's that's the really, you know, the really tricky issue here in that these teams have to hit that kid, you know, find that child four times before uh, he or she is f- uh, five years old. And, I mean, you can imagine in these countries where a street address is a luxury, let alone a house, you know, and, and so, you know, India was always considered the place that was 
going to be the most difficult to get rid of this. And yet through absolute persistence and determination, India with 1.3 billion people and many of them living, you know, in slums and on streets, they wiped out that disease um, and it was India was five years free of polio back in January last year. But what's proved tougher is places like northern Nigeria, Afghanistan and Pakistan, really this one last valley on the border there, where the problem is getting the vaccine past these hardliners. So what do you think the outlook is? Do you think this uh, campaign is ultimately going to succeed and uh, overcome these uh, obstacles that are kind of being put in the way by politics and war? Well, you know, you look at it and you say 12 cases so far this year. uh, And, you know, last year, I think the whole year, there was something like 27. There's been, there hasn't been a single case yet in Nigeria uh, this year, uh, which is extraordinary. Uh, And Nigeria had been three years free of polio and people were thinking that maybe it had crossed the line until last year when there was this little cluster that came out of a a sort of a Boko Haram held area and, and sort of escaped the containment. But now, you know, just 12 cases, it's just so tantalizing to think that, you know, Maybe maybe it is actually achievable and that within a year or two there'll be none and and that, you know, as I said, this extraordinary thing that, you know, first smallpox and now polio, that we will have beaten it. I think the big concern, though, that many people have is, well, there's the Trump factor and there is a lot of discussion about the Gates Foundation have warned that if the sort of 30% cuts to US foreign aid that have been proposed by President Trump go ahead, then polio could exploit that and, and make a a comeback. But as I understand, there's a there's a bipartisan task force of former state and USAID and congressional staffers who are pushing back quite hard against those sorts of cuts. And any, you know, don't forget, you've got an organisation like Rotary. So all you know, this vast network of school teachers and accountants and, you know, doctors um, spread all around the world who have spent 30 years networking and raising, you know, putting their hand in their pocket to beat this. And they are, you know, they're very well connected and they're powerful and maybe their voice will be heard. Did you say Rotary? Yeah, Rotary have been um, a huge, you know, partner in this whole campaign, together with the Gates Foundation. So, you know, it's it's extraordinary, really. It was Rotary that back in 1988 came up with this idea that you know that polio could be beaten, and you know they've been passing the tin in you know suburban lunches every month for those 30 years and and they are really a critical part of the campaign a critical partner along with centers for disease control the gates foundation who and unicef joe chandler is a freelance journalist author editor and educator based in melbourne australia her report on the fight to eradicate polio is at undark.org scroll down to case studies joe thanks so much Thanks so much for talking to me, David. Joining us now is Seth Manukin, our commentator on science in the media. Hello, Seth. Hello, David. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. Um, you, on the other hand, just got back on the red eye from San Francisco where you 
attended a biennial extravaganza of uh, science journalism. Can you tell us about it? Sure. Yeah, it was um, it was the World Conference of Science Journalists. This year it was in the United States. Uh, we also found out that in two years it will be in Lucerne, Switzerland. Sign me up. Exactly. And... When it's in the United States, it's sort of uh, an enlarged version of the annual National Association of Science Writers meeting. There are about 1,300 science journalists from around the world. So it was a, a, a pretty exciting event and a really good chance to connect with colleagues, not just from around the world, but around the country and find out what people's concerns are and, and, and issues are and, and everything else in the world of science journalism. Who knew that there were that many science journalists? Yes, exactly. So uh, what were some of the themes that came up at the conference? Well, one thing that I found really came up a lot in the sort of unconference part of the conference, the conversations in the hallways and, and over lunch and breaks and in between sessions, was issues of sexual harassment. And that's something that both in the science world and in the science journalism world uh, and now in the media world has been kind of coming up to the forefront more and more over the last several years. There was a issue, big issue slash controversy involving sexual harassment in science journalism a couple of years ago involving some people very prominent in the science blogging world. Over the last year or two, uh, BuzzFeed in particular has broken a number of stories about sexual harassment in uh, in very prominent labs um, around the country and, and harassment that uh, it turns out had been sort of an open secret for a long time. And then just within the last couple of weeks, there's been obviously in addition to the Harvey Weinstein revelations, a series of revelations about people in media, not necessarily in science media, but pretty prominent people in, in the media world. So there was a lot of discussion about that 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 I picked up and, and participated in and discussion about how to deal with those issues at places like conferences, how to have a code of conduct that is going to protect people, protect freelancers who come to these conferences, how to deal with issues when there are complaints about conference participants. They're difficult conversations to have, but I found it very heartening because those are conversations that we just weren't having very recently. And I think for someone who has not been subject to harassment, it's been difficult for me to learn how sort of clueless I was about the extent of things that were going on and that women in particular had to deal with just on a regular basis. But it is heartening that that is now being discussed out in the open and that as a community, we are taking steps to, to try and deal with this. Yeah, one of the things that keeps coming up in in these discussions is the uh, imbalance of power. When you know, when you talk about freelancers, right. they have uh, very little power when they're dealing with uh, uh, editors of publications. Yeah, and and, and it, the, it that's becoming, I think, even more of an issue as um, as sort of staff positions within the science journalism world continue to, to diminish and more and more people are, are, are really supporting themselves primarily through freelance. And just in, um, you know, in the graduate program of science writing at MIT, 
I've noticed a real shift just in the last three or four years in, in terms of the percentage of our graduates who are starting their careers primarily as freelancers. And, and that, you know, that puts them in an incredibly vulnerable position, as you said, in, in multiple ways. And, you know, one of the things that has been very eye-opening for me is that I'm constantly telling young journalists and telling students, get out there, go to conferences, find people who either you admire their writing or their editors at a publication that you that you really like and 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 make connections with them. And I'd been for years doing that kind of very clueless about the extent to which I was potentially recommending that that young journalists or students put themselves in in potentially vulnerable situations. And the fact that that conversation is now being had openly, I think, is is a real step forward and is allowing us as the science writing community to address some of this. So this year, the National Association of Science Writers and a, a group that I'm on the board of, we adopted a code of conduct that was designed to address some of these issues. What are what are a couple of concrete planks in that platform? It it, it essentially involves behavior that that makes people feel uncomfortable. It, it it establishes that everyone has a right to be there and not be subject to behavior that is going to make them feel threatened or uncomfortable. And it gives the board mechanisms through which they can remove people from the conference, which is just something that had not been in place previously. And so I think that the 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 fact that all of this is coming out in the open means that people who perpetrate that type of behavior, people who are were unaware that it was going on, people who might be victims of that type of behavior are all more hopefully more willing to talk about it and address it openly and 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 really, you know, try and establish that this is not behavior that is ever acceptable in this community. Speaking of uh, freelancers and behavior, uh, I understand uh, there was a lot of talk at the conference about an issue that we've covered uh, on this podcast and in Undark, uh, which is uh, a magazine called Nautilus. Yeah. So as, as Undark wrote about a couple months ago, there there was a fair amount of frustration with Nautilus over over delayed payments, uh, sometimes thousands of dollars of delayed payments to freelancers. And I heard that topic come up again. I've not done independent reporting on it, so can't offer a sort of nitty gritty update. But the frustration that I heard was very similar to what was expressed in the Undark piece, which was not so much that there are issues with late payments, but that simultaneous to there being issues with really late payments, Nautilus is continuing to go out and solicit work from writers. And that has really rubbed a, a, a lot of people the wrong way, I think very understandably. And it also, in a way, I think it that conversation highlights one of the things that is so that is really beneficial about these type of gatherings and about these type of conferences, especially as more and more of the science writing community is involved in freelancing and that it gives people a chance who might typically be working in a rather isolated situation or, or, or working alone. 
a chance to connect with other people in the same situation and trade that type of intelligence and sort of learn what else is going on out there in the industry and decide if, you know, they get a, a pitch from Nautilus or if they're pitching a story to places, whether that's someplace they want to consider. It's disappointing, I think, to a lot of people because Nautilus has done so much really good work. And there's definitely a, a, a hope that they survive. But at the same time, given the sort of hand-to-mouth existence of so many freelancers, this has engendered a, a, a lot of ill will. Seth Mnookin is our media and science commentator. He's the author of a number of books about science and journalism, including The Panic Virus, and he's director of the graduate program in science writing at MIT. Seth, as always, thanks. Thank you so much, David. It's great to talk to you. For people who live in the Northeast and want to buy local food, the winter can be grim. Cooking root vegetables month after month wears on even the most innovative home chefs. But what if you could have local produce regardless of the season or the climate? What if you could grow anything you wanted in the comfort of your own home? Emily Pontecorvo has the story. It's the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight sprouts right there. Those are all lettuce sprouts. Uh, those two are, are basil. So. It's January, and I'm standing with James O'Brien in his basement in Connecticut. James is a senior in high school. His first love is musical theater. But in the past year, he's developed a new obsession, growing food in a box in his basement. We could totally live in a world, in a country, in a society where we have a totally different way of growing our food. You can bring food where you are. It doesn't need to be somewhere else anymore. James had never really thought about where his food came from. But last summer, he saw this video of an engineer from MIT who invented something called the personal food computer. The guy's name was Caleb Harper, and he said his device had the potential to liberate agriculture. It was going to allow anyone, anywhere, any time of year to grow food. James didn't know how to build a computer, and he had never even put a plant in a windowsill before. But he was drawn to the possibility of the food computer. So all I had to do was, I ended up downloading, like they had instructions for it, they had all the software available, a list of materials you should buy, and I had some time that summer, this past summer, and I went for it. I got all the parts, went to Home Depot, maxed out Amazon Prime, uh, and ended up constructing the, the, the device in a couple weeks. Picture like a small greenhouse that hooks up to your computer, and then an app where you can design the climate inside. You can control the amount of carbon, oxygen, light, moisture, nutrients, everything. So for example, there's yeast in a bottle with sugar, and as the yeast eats up the sugar, it releases carbon dioxide, and there's a little valve that lets the carbon dioxide come on out through a tube right into the food computer. The idea is that if you can control all these inputs, or code the climate, you can create the optimal conditions for whatever you want to grow. And then you can save that data and do it again the exact same way. James's food computer sort of looked like a half-filled fish tank. And floating on the water, he had a sheet of styrofoam with rows of little sprouts growing out of it. It's hydroponic, which means the roots grow in nutrient-rich water instead of in soil. The sprouts that I saw were only a few days old, but James was proud to show me photos on his cell phone from past harvests. There were luscious leafy greens that were nearly overflowing the tank. 
So this is the this is the first successful harvest. We ate this for dinner once. Wow. And that takes about how long to get to that point? Uh, about 30 days, depending on how the growing conditions are and how things are running and everything. So you have one food computer, about every 30 days you get a salad. True. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know it doesn't seem like much. At this, this scale of a food computer is really meant for learning about it. It's meant for sharing the experience and learning about the technology and learning about the growing. His mom was pretty pumped to share the experience too. It was the best salad we ever had. <laughs> it was really fun. You know, it's, it's almost as if life is coming full circle. You know, my grandfather was a farmer from Ireland who emigrated to the U.S. and now my son is getting back into that. And that's a pretty cool full life circle for us. James's mom sees a circle, but the legacy of agriculture probably looks more like a tree, with constant innovation branching out in every direction. Climate-controlled growing might have been new to James O'Brien, but it's not exactly uncharted territory. Around the country, there are farms popping up in computerized warehouses and shipping containers that use the same basic technology as the food computer. Last year, the U.S. Department of Agriculture even started giving loans to urban farmers to purchase things like LED lights instead of tractors. But with Caleb Harper's food computer, it wasn't just about breaking the chains of season and climate. Here's one of Harper's colleagues, Daniel Blake. Everyone's doing their, their own thing without talking to each other. Everyone's operating in these black box systems. So Caleb's approached this from a, an open source, you know, a tremendous amount of transparency. Um, how can we create a, a common foundation that everyone can then innovate off of? The guys at MIT were like, okay, there are all these amazing, extremely controlled indoor farms. But the valuable data and information they're gathering about growing food is being locked up as intellectual property. So Harper made his design and software free to download so that people like James could build it in his basement. He also established a database that anyone can access and contribute to. In all of it, the design, the software, the database, it's all open source. People can play with it and improve on it. Here's O'Brien again. When it's open source, everybody works together all the time. It's something that one person does is shared usually and people use it and it benefits the entire community rather than benefiting like one individual and their experience. So remember the climate settings on the food computer? The light, the temperature, the yeast, etc. Think of those settings as a recipe for growing a specific plant. As people upload their recipes into the database, it becomes like this master botanical cookbook for the modern world. I logged on to the food computer online forum, and I saw users from everywhere. Dubai, New Zealand, London, Texas. They call themselves nerd farmers, and they're actively helping each other, trading data and arranging meetups. Some of them are plant people, and some are makers, and some are parents and teachers. But these nerd farmers are invested. They're partners to MIT. They're helping to improve the design and scale it up. So while the food computer might not be a new solution for agriculture, it is motivating this whole new group of people to get involved in the future of food. But I think most importantly, it teaches you about how to grow plants. And it, it, it gives you a relationship with food, which we think has huge implications for the, the world as a whole, for everyone to, to better understand where our food comes from. Blake explained this idea further when he gave a speech at the Change Food Festival last November. We imagine a world where our food is no longer connected by planes, trains, and automobiles, 
And instead of shipping food, we are shipping data about our food so that you can grow anything that you want, anywhere that you want, that you could grow local from anywhere. And as for James O'Brien, he's heading to the Cornell College of Agriculture next year to study environmental engineering. When I asked him if he wanted to try growing food the old-fashioned way, well, he's having a lot more fun playing God. I want to see, like, what if, what if you built it bigger? What if you built it smaller? What if you changed this, this aspect of it? I'm really enjoying a lot being able to play with the technology to, to change the lives of the plants. So the, the, the interplay between them is what I think is really fun. This story included Creative Commons music by Poddington Bear and Josh Spacek. Special thanks to Diane Hatz from the Change Food Festival for letting us play a clip from Daniel Blake's speech. For Undark, I'm Emily Pontecorvo. And that's all for this episode of Undark, a project of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. Special thanks to Natalie Jones. We'll be back next month with more news and interviews from the intersection of science and society. Until then, I'm David Corcoran for Undark.